You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, thank you for this time we have together now. Lord bless us, I pray, as we work together, as we study, and as we think about the things which lie behind the uh, origins of our own church. And Father, I pray that you would help us in all that we do to uh, grow to be more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we might truly honor his name and do all that we do uh, to his glory. For his name's sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. Right, well, last time I took you through Henry VIII and his marital problems uh, and so on, which led to the, uh, the break, as I say, with Rome, the establishment of uh, an independent Church of England. The first thing that you have to understand, which really explains just about everything else when you, when you think about it, is that the English Reformation was a reformation from above not from below. And it, what I mean by this is that uh, if you think of, say, Martin Luther or John Calvin uh, or somebody like that, some one of the, the continental reformers, um, although they didn't represent exact what I would call the grassroots of the church, I mean, they weren't the sort of bottom of the pile socially, um, they weren't the rulers either. Uh, they were somewhere in the middle. Uh, something that today would be, uh, uh, I suppose, part of the middle class, except that there wasn't really a middle class uh, as we understand it in the 16th century. But Luther was a university professor. Uh, Calvin uh, was, had been a, a law student and became a lawyer and so on. Uh, this is the kind of person that we're talking about, all right? Not the king's uh, or, or dukes or princes or whatever, but not the peasants either. But in England, of course, as we, you know, the, the, the break with Rome, or call it that rather than Reformation, came about because the king uh, felt that he needed uh, to, uh, to remarry, basically, uh, because he needed a male heir to succeed him on the throne. Once he broke with Rome, once the country broke uh, with the papacy, with the Pope, a whole lot of other things uh, sort of fell into place almost uh, inevitably. Henry did not want a reformation in any real sense of the word. He would have been quite happy to let things carry on in the church as they had always done. But this wasn't really possible because uh, once you make an enemy of the Pope, or you break with the, the Pope, uh, you need to have friends. Uh, you need to have allies. And who are you going to get as your allies? Well, of course, the only people you, you, you can really trust or rely on are other people who have problems with the Pope. Uh, and that means people like Martin Luther. And as I said last time, for those of you who were here, Martin Luther and Henry VIII never hit it off. Uh, they were not friends. Uh, they didn't see eye to eye. Uh, Henry VIII actually wrote a book condemning Martin Luther, which wasn't the best way to go about it, um, as you might imagine. Um, and uh, so this was not an easy thing to do. 
But once he broke with Rome, he really had very little choice. Uh, he had to have an alliances. Why? Uh, because the Pope's supporters in other countries, uh, in France, for example, in Spain, uh, which were the major powers of the time, uh, could be uh, uh, commandeered by the Pope, so commandeered, used by the Pope to invade England and overthrow Henry. That was the, the fear, you see, that this might happen. So Henry was pushed into uh, a, a kind of reformation, into an openness <coughs> to thinking and ideas. I've got a cold. Um, thinking and ideas that he wouldn't normally, naturally have chosen. Now every church, it doesn't matter what church it is, is based on three fundamental pillars. You have your doctrine, you have your discipline, and you have your devotion. I'll put it like this. Doctrine is, is what you believe, the content of what you believe. Discipline is how you organize your church, church government. Devotion is how you worship. And these three things had to be sorted out. If you break with the Pope, with the, Pope, with the Roman Catholic Church, what kind of doctrine are you going to have? What, what are you going to teach? Well, obviously you can't teach that the Pope is head of the church. Uh, you can't teach that, that whatever the Pope says uh, it, it goes. You have to have some other authority. And in the 16th century, of course, many people, not just uh, uh, the English, but many people, said the, the, the authority for the church has to be the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. What the Bible says is what we are expected to believe. It is what we are expected to teach. And so that becomes central. Now, if you make the Bible central to the worship of your church, central to the life of your church, this means that the way you organize your church will be different. Because you will look at the Bible and you will say, if something is in the Bible, then it must be in our church. We must, we must organize our church that way. If something is not in the Bible, then we have to ask ourselves, is, is it okay to do that? Uh, because the Bible doesn't say one way or the other. Or is it not okay? Because what the Bible says goes against that. You see, this is, this is a difference. Oh, thank you very much. This is a difference. Uh, all right, that we have uh, that we have to consider. Now, the English reformers, on the whole, were conservative. That is to say, they wanted to keep things that didn't go against the teaching of the Bible, even if they weren't in the Bible itself. So, a lot of the the, the pattern of worship, the form of worship, and so on. They didn't really want to change because it's what they had inherited. They didn't uh, want to alter the system of church government, get rid of bishops and things like this, because although it's not clear from the New Testament whether there were bishops or not, um, as we understand them in the early church, 
Um, the, the New Testament didn't say there was anything wrong with this, uh, you see, or uh, uh, this kind of thing. So we keep those things. But then there are other things uh, that the church was doing, like praying to the saints in heaven, uh, you see, asking them uh, to intercede with God, uh, you know, to cure them of various diseases and that kind of thing. Now that is not in the Bible. There's no authorization for that. So that had to stop. Then there was the belief that when people died, they didn't go straight to heaven. They went to purgatory, that is to say a place after death where they could work off the payment for sins that they had committed that they hadn't actually paid for during their time on earth. Now, it's, you have to think about this because uh, purgatory, uh, we tend to think, is, some, is, is a more or less the same as hell. Uh, you know, people think of it like this. But actually purgatory is not like hell at all. Why not? Because hell is a place of no hope. When you go to hell, you stay there forever. When you go to purgatory, though, you are working off your, your debt of sin, and in the end, you will get to heaven. The question is, how long is it going to take? And it might take millions of years. You see, and there was a whole system of, uh, uh, of penitence, of uh, prayers for the dead, and so on, which was set up uh, in order to help people get through purgatory faster than they otherwise might. So in other words, you could, you could sort of buy your way, uh, not exactly out of purgatory, but um, you could uh, spend money and get what is called an indulgence. And an indulgence is basically time off in purgatory. Uh, so your, your sentence would be lessened, it would be mitigated, uh, you see, so that you wouldn't be there quite as long as you otherwise might. And there were whole uh, uh, churches built, uh, they're called chantries, which were built specifically for this purpose, you see, where people would go and they would pay money uh, to the priest and so on to say prayers for their dead relatives. So their dead relatives uh, or indeed themselves after they died, uh, you know, would be expedited through purgatory into heaven. Well, of course, that's not in the Bible either. So that had to go, you see. And this was a major upheaval for a lot of people. Because just think about it, you see, if you had given money for prayers to be said when you died so that your time in purgatory would be uh, shortened uh, and then suddenly somebody comes along and says well there is no purgatory you don't have to do that um, this is a waste of time and indeed uh, it's wrong to do so um, what happens to all the money that you've given you know uh, what happens to the legacy, the inheritance, and so on. And you know how, how, how people can get about things like money and property uh, and so on, you know. They might not worry too much about purgatory, but my goodness, if you're taking their money away, uh, they might think a little differently. 
So there were a lot of problems like this, you see, that had to be, had to be sorted out. Well, that's doctrine. <coughs> Discipline uh, was a whole other issue, because who decided who the, the clergy were going to be? How did you become <coughs> a clergyman? Well, there were basically two different ways. One, you could go to university and get a university degree and then be ordained by some bishop. That was possible. Or you could go into a monastery and be trained by the monks there, uh, you know, taught how to read, taught how to take services, uh, taught practical things that you would need when you got down into the actual parish, all right? Henry VIII closed the monasteries, dissolved the monasteries. Taking that uh, avenue, if you like, out of commission, I mean, you couldn't do this anymore. But this was a major problem, because 37% of the parishes in England at the time of the Reformation belonged to monasteries. And when I say belonged, I mean the monasteries had the right to send the clergyman down there, the priest who was going to go there, they would appoint them. Now you might think that's uh, a, a rather strange thing, but from the point of view of a parish, um, that was quite good because you always knew you would get somebody. You know, you didn't have to go searching and have a search and uh, then have arguments about whether the guy is the right sort of person for you or, or anything like that because the monastery would say, right, right, well, you know, brother so-and-so, this monk here, he'll go down and he will take the services in your church. So it was kind of a guarantee like that. And you know, if, you're af if you want somebody uh, to, to take your services and do the church, that, that's quite a good thing to have. Now when this is cut off, you see, which is what happened, what are you going to do then? Well, of course, you're stuck with university graduates. Two problems. One, there weren't all that many of them. Uh, I mean, not enough to fill all the parishes in England by a long way. And secondly, well, they were university graduates. <laughs> and in a country which is 80%, at least 80% agricultural, and people are going down to parishes which are, you know, miles away from anything or anybody, we're way out in the country. A university graduate is basically from Mars, <laughs> as far as they're concerned, you know, because you get somebody down into a church and they're very well educated. They can read Greek, they can read Hebrew, um, you know, they read theology, that's fine. But can they milk a cow? No. For some reason or another, they don't, didn't teach that in university. You know, could they plow a field? No. In other words, could they do anything that was even remotely useful in an agricultural uh, setting? No. And so you have uh, problems like this. You see people, although they're well-educated and they mean well, it's very hard for them to connect with the locals. Now, of course, the university graduates, on the other hand, 
you can imagine what they thought about the sort of people they went to. You know, they go into a parish and uh, nobody could read and write, uh, nobody was interested in reading and writing, um, you know, the, the whole way of life was completely different uh, from, what, uh, the, uh, from what they were used to. Um, Sundays, in particular, uh, were social occasions because it was the only day of the week that you could come together and meet people. And this is where young people met each other, where a lot of courting would go on, uh, you know, among the young people. Uh, it was a place where you would have fairs, sort of traveling um, uh, fairs would, would come and uh, you would have merchants selling their wares, you know, their pots and pans and so on to the women um, uh, as they came after church. Uh, the men would sit around basically drinking. Um, and this was, act was organized. I mean, you may laugh at this, but um, the church sold beer to the men of the parish. And it was called the church ale. Yes, church ales. And the money raised from the church ale would go to repair the church, the church building. And what would happen, of course, is as the men got tanked up uh, a little bit, somebody would find a ball and somebody else would, you know, find a bat maybe uh, or something like this. They'd start kicking a ball around or batting a ball around. And this is where team games as we know them today got their origin, right? I mean, today, of course, it's all highly organized and they're not the same. You have baseball, you have cricket, which are, were originally two forms of a similar game. Um, you have football, uh, which covers a, a number of different things, uh, you know, soccer, rugby, and so on. And, and this is what people would do, uh, well, the men anyway, would do on Sundays after church. The university graduates who came down, you know, uh, to, to preach and such, they weren't interested in those things. They wanted Bible study. Um, they wanted teaching and preaching. They wanted people to stay after church like you this morning here and listen to people like me, all right? Which most of them, quite frankly, didn't want to do. Uh, as, you can, as you can imagine. And this caused a conflict, a conflict which we know, we know about, because it was the origin of Puritanism. Puritanism, uh, this, this is the name given to those people, those cler mainly clergy originally, who wanted to change the culture of the village away from this kind of social, you know, game playing and all that sort of thing, um, into serious, sober, give Sunday over to worship and uh, prayer and, and study, all right? Sort of basically change the whole way of thinking. Now, it's important that you understand this because things got so bad um, in, in the villages uh, that at one point the king, King James uh, I, who was uh, the, the, you know, the man who wrote the Bible, him, um, he uh, issued what he called the Book of Sports 
and he ordered every clergyman in England to read this from the pulpit on Sunday morning. And what the Book of Sports said was, you mustn't stop people from playing games on Sunday. You mustn't interfere with their social life. You see, by all means have your worship service and so on and do that kind of thing, but don't, uh, you know, don't take things too far. And there were some people in the country who were so upset about this that they basically got in a boat and sailed away. And this is the origin. Uh, this, these are the Mayflower people. All right? And it's hard to believe that America was founded by people trying to get away from football. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but there you are. <laughs> Uh, all right, um, uh, and this, uh, you see, th th this was the thing. Now, those people, of course, doing this caused division in the church, clearly, because the question now arises, well, what is the church? Who belongs to the church? You see, at the time of the Reformation, everybody belonged to the church. That was taken for granted. You know, the, the, the church and the state were the same thing, in effect. But once you have people disagreeing with, with, the, with the government, disagreeing with the state and the way that it was being organized, once you had people who were so annoyed that they were prepared to get up and go, leave the country altogether, um, this question uh, is raised, you see. Who, what is the church? Who belongs to it? Um, if you don't like what's going on uh, and you get up and leave, uh, what, what is this saying, uh, you see? Are you leaving your country? Uh, are you leaving the church as well? Uh, are you taking the church with you? What are you doing? Um, and so Puritanism, you see, the Puritan, the Puritan movement uh, really raises this question, what is the relationship between the church and society, between the church and the state? And it is at this time that uh, a distinctive uh, approach, which we would today call Anglicanism, uh, becomes visible, all right? Because the, uh, the people that we would call today Anglicans were the ones who stuck with the traditional pattern, the traditional system, okay? That uh, they were prepared to go along with the government, they were prepared to let uh, let people play their games and, and that kind of thing. It doesn't mean to say that they weren't interested in Bible study and all that, um, uh, but they weren't so fanatical, they weren't so determined about it. And they certainly weren't going to get up and leave the country uh, just for that reason. All right. Uh, so uh, this is what, what happens. This is the question of discipline. And it's important to understand this because Puritanism was a movement of discipline complaining that the, the official church wasn't disciplined enough, all right, for them. Then, of course, you have devotion, worship. What are you going to do about this? Well, of course, before the Reformation, the priest would stand at the front of the church and he would have his, well, a lot of the time he would have his back to the people 
and he would be mumbling away in Latin. No one would have any idea what he said, uh, uh, but it would be reverent, it would be holy, you know, you, because you, you would see the actions, you would see the, 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 the parading around, and you would think, well, this is, you know, they know what they're doing, uh, and we just sort of bow and, and kneel and, and, you know, let it, ha let it all happen. The Reformation was an exercise in what we would call today congregational participation. The prayers are translated into English. A prayer book is created and people are meant to follow along. You see, they're meant to learn the prayers, they're meant to participate. And the great thing about the prayer book, I don't know whether you, you realize this, is that people are meant to be part of the service. You see, the priest will stand at the front and say something and you respond. Um, uh, and, and we do this today. I mean, you know, we, take, we, we say the Psalms, we, we do this kind of thing. Uh, so, so we're part of it. And for us, this is normal. We take this for granted. But of course, in the 16th century, this was a new thing. People weren't used to this. Uh, and so the question then arises, well, uh, how do we teach this? You see, how do we uh, get this across to the, to, the, to the average person? And remember that most people didn't have books. A, high, a large number of people couldn't read, or, with, or they read with great difficulty. So um, it, was, it, it was an uphill task to get people to learn these things, to, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to participate and to, to understand what is going on. Now part of this, uh, part, uh, and this was a, an issue with the prayer book, um, was people paid more attention to what they saw the, the, the priest doing as to what they heard him saying, all right? the words were less important to the average person than the actions. And what you find in the prayer book, if you look at it carefully, the words are one thing, but there are, there, there are instructions to tell the priest what to do. These are called rubrics. That's the name for them. But it will say uh, things like, uh, you know, the priest will stand in front of the church and say this or that. Then the people stand or the people sit or the people kneel and so on. And, uh, of course, people start to say, well, uh, this must matter, you know. If the priest is, is the, one, the one who's doing the talking, um, then it's because he's saying something that's more important or something that you and I can't say, we can't participate in. Uh, if we're told to kneel, that's because it's some, some kind of holier thing going on. Uh, or we stand, or whatever, you know, the actions that we do must mean something, must have some significance. And this, of course, is where the Puritans were very hot on. Uh, on. They, they, they thought this too. Um, and there were a lot of arguments about this. A lot of arguments about whether, for example, you should kneel to receive communion. Uh, and some people said, yes, you should, because it's reverence. You see, you're, you're, you're showing reverence uh, in the presence of God. And other people would say, no, you shouldn't, because kneeling suggests that you think 
that the priest has turned the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, transubstantiation, uh, the doctrine from the medieval church, and that uh, you're worshipping these things. You see, it's a sign of worship. Uh, and trying to sort this out, you see, getting people to do one thing or the other, was not an easy thing to do. And there were a lot of controversies going on about this, uh, you see, for a long time. Well, in the end, uh, of course, in England, uh, this all led to civil war. It's hard to believe now, um, but that's what happened. Uh, there was a civil war, and the Puritans won, at least initially, you see. But as often happens when these things take place, they won the war, but then they didn't know what to do, you see. Uh, they, they had no idea how to govern uh, in peacetime because they disagreed with one another uh, over different things. The leader of the Puritan uh, army, Oliver Cromwell, uh, was, a very, was a great man. I mean, he, had, uh, he was a very sincere Christian and uh, he wanted the best. He was a very tolerant person. But he was a tolerant person at a time when tolerance was not popular. Because everybody thought, well, you know, there, there's, there's, something, there's one thing that is right and there's another thing that is wrong and uh, you, you're either on the side of the right or you're on the side of the wrong and if the, the people on the side of the right are tolerating what they think is on the side of the wrong, um, then they're, they're, that's a sin. You see, you, you can't do this. The trouble, of course, is that everybody had their own idea of what was right, uh, you know. Uh, uh, they, they didn't agree about this. Uh, and Cromwell was really quite sort of open-minded about this. He didn't much care. Um, he believed that uh, as long as you were filled with the Spirit, as he put it, uh, it was okay, all right, which sounds good, uh, sounds nice. Uh, and so on. But you would have people like George Fox, a man called George Fox, who was one of the founders, uh, of, the founders of the Quakers, because the Quakers suddenly appear at this time. And the, the Quakers in the 17th century weren't anything like the Quakers today. I mean, today Quakers are very respectable, uh, you know, wealthy people and, and so on, and very quiet and all the rest of it. Um, but in the 17th century, they were rabble-rousers. They were called Quakers because they quaked, you know, like that. And uh, yeah, and George Fox, you see, when he was got filled with the Spirit, took his clothes off and ran through the streets naked. Now, if you know anything about England and its weather, uh, you will know that you have to be filled with the Spirit to do a thing like that. Um, I mean, you just couldn't imagine it otherwise. Uh, but, uh, but that's what he did. And a lot of people would say, well, we don't really think this is what being filled with the Spirit is all about, <laughs> you know. Um, and then there were other groups, too. There were groups that were called the Ranters. Well, you can imagine what they did. Um, and they were similar, you see. Or the Diggers, who were, who were primitive communists. They would sort of go and seize land, vacant land, and start farming it to set up communes and so on. Uh, and so the whole thing just, just kind of uh, degenerated into, you know, do what you want uh, sort of thing. 
Um, and there was no control, no organization. And uh, Cromwell, in the end, got so fed up uh, that he, he closed down the parliament, he ruled as a dictator. When he died, nobody knew who, who should succeed him, so they appointed his son, one of his sons, to succeed him. And at this point, you see, everybody said, well, this is no good. Uh, you know, the country's falling apart. Uh, we need to call back the king. We need to reestablish the church as it was before. And so in 1660, that is what they did. And the Anglican Church, as we know it today, really dates from this time, all right? Because in 1662, uh, a new prayer book was introduced uh, that set the law uh, as it was to be, and those who didn't like it, uh, you know, were, were left, uh, or, or they were thrown out. Uh, the, the great ejection, as it was called. So there was an establishment of a particular uh, form of worship and so on, a particular uh, pattern uh, that, that was to prevail and has prevailed ever since, you see, because all the prayer books that we have now, uh, everything that we have now basically go back to this time, uh, to 1662. That's the sort of you know, foundation year, if you like. People who didn't like it either left the country uh, or uh, established churches of their own, uh, which initially were not recognized. All right? uh, it took a generation for this to happen. If you want to get a good picture of what England was like in the late 17th century, of the way this was happened, I recommend going to Charleston, South Carolina, because, no, seriously, because Charleston was founded at this time, you see, uh, in the 1680s or something like that. You can ask some of the people, but they've been there since then, so they tell you, um, you know. Um, and if you, if you read, go to Charleston, it's very interesting because you have Church Street, and then you have Meeting Street. And on Church Street, you have the church, St. Philip's Church, which is still there. And St. Philip's Church has a spire, because only Anglican churches were allowed to have spires. That was the sign, you see, of, of being a church. Over on Meeting Street, which runs parallel to it, there's a sort of round meeting house and that's where all the people who didn't like the church met, all right? And they would be people, who, some of them would be, be what we would call Presbyterians, some of them would be independents, uh, which meant that the difference, a Presbyterian uh, really has a, a, a connectional church. You see that the, uh, it, it's not every congregation decides what it wants to do. Uh, independence would be every congregation makes its own decisions. And Baptists, for example, are congregationalists, you see. And it's only in Birmingham, Alabama, where you get independent Presbyterian church, which is a contradiction in terms. Uh, but don't, don't tell them that. Anyhow, uh, no, it's true. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't work. Um, but, but this is still there today, you see. This is the point because Charleston has kind of uh, survived uh, as, a, uh, as a monument to that era. 
And so you can, you can go there and see it as, as, as it works in practice. And the interesting thing is the, the graveyards that stretch from the meeting house and the church meet. So the people met in death, um, but, but not in life. You see, you have these, these, these two parallel tracks going down. And this is basically what happened in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. You had the, 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 the state church, the conformist church, the Church of England, the, the Anglican church, and then you had these nonconformists, Baptists, Presbyterians, people like that, all right, on the other side. In the 18th century, um, those people, the nonconformist people, actually declined in number. Um, because the issues, you see, that had originally caused the separation became less important. Uh, people forgot why they, you know, why they had ever fought in the first place. Um, uh, you know, and so the, the, the things cooled down, they calmed down a lot. And it, had things carried on like that, it's possible that these nonconformist people would eventually have gone back into the church and there would only be the one church, you see, the, the, the Church of England, the, well, the Episcopal Church as we know it here. But then something else happened. There was a revival uh, a revival uh, led by uh, John Wesley, the famous John Wesley, and his associates. And John Wesley was a very devout Anglican. He, um, he belonged to the Anglican Church. He supported the Anglican Church. He went to Georgia as a missionary for the Anglican Church. He went to Savannah. That was his whole purpose, and so on. But Wesley did something that Anglicans at that time and even now uh, don't really like doing, and that is he went out into the streets and preached to people and invited people, you know, the, not the right people, into the church, the, the lower classes and things like this, you see, and with tremendous results, huge success, thousands of people you know, turned to Christ because of the ministry of people like John Wesley, not just him, but others as well at that time. And the church was overwhelmed. What are you going to do with these people? Well, Wesley, of course, had to organize them. Uh, and he, or he did. He organized them into groups and so on, uh, and then appointed ministers for them because the official church wouldn't do that. You see, you had to go to university, you had to be trained, you had to be planned and all the rest of it, and, and, and Wesley couldn't wait for that. You see, uh, he was faced with a crisis, he had to deal with it. This is how Methodism came into being, all right? Uh, and uh, at first, the Methodists remained in the Anglican Church. They remained uh, Episcopalian. Uh, they didn't leave because Wesley didn't want them to. He wanted them to, to basically to be a spiritual movement within the church, all right? But circumstances, the, the official church wasn't flexible enough to deal with this, to sort of bring these people in. In this country, of course, the, the Revolution, the War of Independence uh, caused a different kind of problem, uh, and most of the people who 
uh, had gone and uh, who were Episcopalian, what we would call Episcopalian now, um, basically broke with the Church of England because it was the state church and they broke with the state, so they broke with the, the, the church as well and founded the Methodist Church. Um, but the Methodist Church in the United States is an Episcopal Church. You see, it has bishops. The Methodist Church in England is not. So if a Methodist goes from here, to, from Birmingham, Alabama, to Birmingham, England, you're going to a different kind of church because a Methodist church in Birmingham, England will not have a bishop. Didn't the Anglican Church appoint, start appoint a Methodist bishop, but Wesley didn't hear about it in time here? How, how does that no, uh, well, there were no colonial bishops uh, and, and, and because the, the, the government in London wanted to control, wanted to keep control of this. So, the, no, the first bishops, the first Episcopal bishop, Samuel Seabury, was actually uh, consecrated in Scotland, not in England, because the English bishops wouldn't consecrate him. And so he had to go to Scotland, where the Episcopal Church was illegal at that time, uh, you know, because they'd, well, for political reasons, uh, and Seabury got, got consecrated by them. <coughs> and then the English bishops said, well, we can't allow that to happen. Uh, so they, they kind of agreed to consecrate bishops for America uh, after that. But it was never a very popular thing, you see. And why? Because the Church of England found it very difficult to imagine how you could be a member of it outside the country. It was very much tied to the country, to the state, and so on, in the 18th century. And it was only after the American Revolution and after the uh, great missionary expansion in the 19th century that the, the Anglican Church spread around the world, spread outside of England, um, and created a family of churches, the Anglican Communion as we have it today, which is not necessarily tied to England, all right? Uh, but this is a complicated thing because in the history, of course, goes back to the Church of England and you can't get away from that. But the actual churches, say the Episcopal Church in the USA, for example, um, is independent uh, of the Church of England. It's a different kind of thing. And uh, for a long time, I mean, now they're in communion. Well, they've always been in communion. But now they have sort of, you know, reasonably close relations. But for a long time, they didn't. And you may find this hard to believe, but through the 19th century, early 20th century, American Episcopalians and English Anglicans didn't necessarily think of themselves as belonging to the same church, even though they did. Um, you can see this if you, if you go to Paris, is a good example. Because in Paris, you have an American cathedral, which is Episcopalian, you know, for the Americans. And you have English churches belonging to the Church of England um, for the English. They're both Anglicans, but they're not part of the same jurisdiction, even though they're in the same city. Um, and even today, they don't really have a great deal to do with one another. 
and this is part of the problem with the Anglican communion in the world today, that each national church, you know, whether it's Australia or South Africa or USA or wherever it is, I mean, they have their own independent uh, government, their own independent uh, way of doing things, their own prayer books. They've changed the prayer book. Um, well, updated, modernized, you know, produce a different prayer book. But they've basically become independent churches, sister churches in a way, yes. I mean, there is a family resemblance, um, but not really tied together very closely. And so, of course, um, trying to do this, I mean, can the, can the Anglican Church, the Anglican Communion, really be a united church in the way that, say, the Roman Catholic Church is? The Archbishop of Canterbury is not a pope. He can't come here and tell y you what to do, uh, you know. Um, and, uh, and this can get complicated. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can travel around and you can go from one Anglican church to another and yet find that it's really quite different because it's kind of spread out and separated out in this way, uh, all right? I'm going to look at this m in more detail when we meet again in a couple of weeks, but this is the way in which things have developed over time. So if you think in terms, up until the, the American Revolution, that sort of time, the the Anglican Church, the Church of England, what we call the Episcopal Church, was, was, a, was really a unity, all right? It's since then that it's, it's divided up, it's split up into different, uh, different national churches, which, although they're not separate denominations, it would be wrong to say that, they're not separate denominations, but they're not really a very closely knit, united church either. I, I mean, to, just to give you an example, um, I am a licensed priest in the Church of England, all right? I have no right to celebrate communion or do anything here. No, I would have to get a license from the Bishop of Alabama. And, and that's not a simple process. So what do I think about those things? Yeah, 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 well, what was the first thing again? Yeah, all right, okay, <laughs> the third, yeah. Oh, it was the money for reparations for slavery, that's nonsense. Yeah, well, um, no, I mean, Parliament cannot, the English Parliament, can, the British Parliament cannot do this, what they say. Uh, members of Parliament, there are some members of Parliament who think it can, that they can tell the church what to do, but this is not possible. Um, because although the Church of England is the state church, is the national church, it's not governed by Parliament. Um, it has its own government. It's, a, it's like the Episcopal Church in the US. The difference is that when the church passes legislation, its own legislation, that legislation is then sent to Parliament for ratification. All right? But Parliament basically has to ratify this unless it has a really good reason for not doing so. When it comes to same-sex marriage, the initiative for this would have to come from the church. In fact, this is written into the legislation, the existing legislation. Um, in the UK, 
the church is forbidden to perform same-sex marriages. It's not just that it doesn't do it. It's forbidden by law, by the state law. Parliament, of course, could lift that and say, allow the church to do it if it want, but it couldn't force the church to do so. The church has to make its, its own decision. What's going to happen, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen. Um, the bishops are meeting tomorrow. Um, they're going to publish something at the end of this week. We'll see. I doubt whether there'll be any very great change because um, there's just too much resistance to this, you see, at the grassroots level. Um, and uh, I just don't think that's going to happen. But, but we'll wait and see. But certainly, the, no, the, the state cannot force the church to do anything uh, like this. That's a, that's a myth. Um, uh, but it's a myth, unfortunately, which some members of parliament, uh, you know, play along with. But then there are people around in this country who think Congress can do anything it wants, and they discover to their, you know, their horror that that doesn't work. <laughs> you know? Okay. All right. Well, thank you for your time, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.